As the owner and founding father of TR Historical, Dave Boussier took what he learned in a previous long career in retail and combined it with what he loved, history, to create his own family-owned small business, a one-stop shop for people who love the past. The products TR Historical sells are aimed to help people express their enthusiasm for subjects just like fans of sports teams, brands, activities, or destinations typically do. TR Historical offers items from many different subjects and time periods worldwide. Ancient history, American Revolution, the World Wars, the Civil War, science, and art history. They typically only feature the deceased, allowing a place that is typically comfortable and safe for shoppers despite different politics of the day. Their hope is to make history fresh and more engaging while supporting fans of the subject. They support sites and opportunities, when available, that bring history to people in an engaging way. And right now, you can go to trhistorical.com and use the promo code TATTOO to get 10% off your order. That's T-A-T-T-O-O. Use that code at checkout to get 10% off. You'll be supporting a small business during these trying times and obtaining some new history swag for your home, closet, or office space. Go check out trhistorical.com today. What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. My name's John. I am the Tattooed Historian. We've been talking about branding for the last few weeks. We've been talking about different online platforms and how to utilize them. So I figure it's a good time for a little bit of a break. And I'm going to put on one of the live stream interviews that we just conducted this past week. And when I say we, I mean Dr. Peter Carmichael and I got back together again for a live stream interview. It was a reunion. And of course, Dr. Peter Carmichael is the director of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. And it was great to be reunited with him. We did a bunch of live streams together back a year ago. And we started right when the pandemic uh, really took off. We started doing online stuff together. And uh, we haven't really worked together since July of last year. So it was great to be back on with my good friend. And I wanted to rip this audio out of this interview because this week I'm going to present to you the audio of Gordon Ray, who came on and talked about the Overland campaign and, and his work as a Civil War historian. Gordon Ray, in my opinion, is the foremost authority on the Overland campaign of 1864, the great battles between Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. And I really enjoyed this live stream. Uh, it really flowed well. We had a great time. And I think it would be a great podcast episode, something for you to listen to and, and take it in and understand what we were talking about and, and how different people approach the past and approach history. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's my interview alongside my co-host, Dr. Peter Carmichael. And we are interviewing the awesome Gordon Ray. Enjoy it.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's live stream presentation here on the Tattoo Historian channel on Facebook and YouTube. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian. And it's great to be joined once again by my dear friend and colleague, the man with the greatest hair in the Civil War field, Dr. Peter Carmichael, head of the CWI at Gettysburg College. Pete, how are you, my friend? It's great to have a well, reunion. Great seeing you. And if you got to be noted for something, right? It might as well be my hair. It's not going to be my scholarship. That's that's for sure. Oh, come on. How long has it been since we've done a show together? It seems like forever. It's been since July. Yeah, it's been a I while. Did. So I was telling Gordon this before that you and I did two a week beginning, I believe, either in April. And we ran all the way through. Yeah. And it was uh, there were a lot of artistic differences, as you can imagine, Gordon, between us. But we were mad, managed to keep it together, at least through the middle of the summer. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad that this is our beginning, I guess, of our reunion tour. Of <laughs> yeah, well, you got uh, you got great hair there, Pete. I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it'll go just like everybody else's just i'm thrilled to introduce gordon ray who is a a dear friend and uh i give a little bit of background about gordon i'm gonna i'm gonna wing it and then he can come in and he can make the corrections uh if he likes i i might actually even uh exaggerate some of your accomplishments which is actually pretty hard to do this is a pretty accomplished fellow uh he is a native of tennessee and uh, he started off his academic career going to, I should say drum roll, please, because Indiana University School of Music, which is one of the finest in the country. And he uh, started off as a jazz drummer. Gordon told me that he quickly discovered that he wasn't quite at the level he needed to be. He left Indiana University, still a diehard Bobby Knight basketball fan. I don't know if you are or not, but I got to believe you are. <laughs> I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I have to believe. Uh, <laughs> these days, uh, Gordon, I live off the memories of Bobby Knight and the mm -hmm. 1987, the last time we won an NCAA championship. But I will not digress about IU basketball. And then Gordon went on and you did your history degree. Uh, I'm going to say Yale. It's either Yale or Harvard. Harvard. My, well, my master's degree was from Harvard, yeah. My undergraduate was from Indiana University. Uh -huh. And then you went off to do your law degree, but you went off to California. Did you go to Stanford? Um, yeah, I did my law degree at Stanford. Actually, after I got my master's in history, uh, I was in the Peace Corps for two years in Ethiopia. Right? And then I, was, then I went to California, worked as a carpenter for a bit, and then went to law school yeah. in 1971. And then, right? well, I think, thank God, you know, Ethiopia is just in the throes right now of a horrible it is. war. It's it awful. is. I follow it very closely. Yeah. yeah. What's going on there is, is terrible. Yeah. And yeah. then you uh, you were a lawyer, but you were on the prosecuting side for the federal government. And you have uh, shared with me some of the stories of your lawyer days, which are really quite fascinating. You continued, of course, your practice, and you are now uh, headquartered of sorts in Charleston or in Mount Pleasant, uh, South Carolina. And so I recall, this is so long ago, and I, I'm going to have to cheat here to look at the publication date. And, and that is the first book of your remarkable and uh, what I believe will be the definitive account of the Overland Campaign, published in 1994. And I'm right. sorry, Blair, there it is, published by LSU, The Battle of the Wilderness. And in a sense, it came out of nowhere. I mean, this is really pre-internet stuff, right? And we're like, who is this Gordon Ray? Well, hell, he is a lawyer. And of course, Gordon is in the long line of lawyers who have uh, been poaching on the turf of historians, right? And, there's, and you can go down the line. Alan Nolan, 
a lawyer by uh, uh, by trade. Kent Masterson Brown, a lawyer by trade. Eric Wittenberg, a lawyer by trade. And so when Gordon's book came out, I said to myself, you know what? If they can poach, you know, in our territory, I'm going to do the same thing to them. I vowed on that day, Gordon, that if I ever find myself in court, I'm going to defend myself. Even if that means I have to go to jail, I'm still going to prove a point here. So that historians, we can do your job as well. Well, you're proving one of our legal maxims, and that is that only a fool will represent himself. <laughs> Living proof. Very good. <laughs> I have not had that opportunity yet, but I'm still young, and I'm sure an opportunity will eventually arise. So what I'm going to get us started tonight, obviously, you have a great love for history. You had a master's in history, but you're practicing law, and as we know, as a demanding career. Why did you just wake up one morning and said, you know what? I want to write about the wilderness. What, what was behind that? Well, it, it goes way back, actually, to my childhood. My, uh, my father was born in a little town in southern Tennessee on the Alabama border back in 1901, uh, which is only, what, 35 years, 36 years after the end of the Civil War. So as you can imagine, all the uh, old men talking around, sitting around the uh, grocery store were all Confederate veterans. So he grew up in that, in that culture. Um, and uh, I was born in 1945 and uh, uh, sort of grew up hearing those tales. And uh, we'd make trips to all the battlefields. He was very interested in that. He was quite a, uh, he, he didn't have a lot of academic background, but he was very interested in, in American history and the Civil War, read widely. And uh, I think that's definitely where I got my interest from. When I, when I went to college and discovered I wasn't as good a musician as I'd hoped to be and ended up going into history, which is a good place for failed musicians. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, I didn't go into um, Civil War history particularly. It was more American history and more the modern era. And I did my master's degree in uh, American policy at Laos in the 19, uh, 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 way back in the, actually in the 1950s, uh, was the period I looked at. Uh, but um, I didn't really get back into American Civil War history until I was working in Washington, D.C. as an assistant United States attorney trying cases day and night uh, and uh, starting to burn out and needed to get uh, sort of a hobby and started to go down into central Virginia, visiting the battlefields and ended up spending some time in the wilderness. Uh, got to know Bob Crick and uh, all the historians who were working there at the time. This would have been about 1978, 79, right around then. And um, thought the wilderness was fascinating. So I started looking for books and believe it or not, there was only one book uh, from modern times on the wilderness. That was uh, Ed Steer's book. Other than that, there was virtually nothing. Uh, there were no books at all on the battles of Spotsylvania Courthouse. The North Anna campaign was unknown. Cold Harbor was sometimes mentioned as a footnote, and that was about it. And so the Civil War was sort of a big battle in uh, Manassas and Chancellorsville and somewhere else, and then Gettysburg, and then a year or so later, Lee surrenders and something happened in between, but nobody really looked at it that hard. And that's that's kind of what got me interested in it. So why do you think that for so long that period had been neglected? Well, I, it, it was neglected actually almost as soon as it was done. Uh, the When you read the accounts of the soldiers that fought there, and I've read hundreds, if not thousands of letters from soldiers, both north and south, uh, it was a nightmare. Uh, it was... 
constant battle, uh, constant uh, marching, uh, uh, endless slaughter, uh, basically for 40 days, the movements from the, you know, from the Rapidan River down to Petersburg. And it was, it was a horror show. And uh, of course, after the, after the war, um, when monuments started to spring up, there were virtually no monuments put on those battlefields. The veterans rarely went back to them. Uh, and uh, it was like nobody wanted to have anything to do with it. And uh, it, you know, it was confusing. It was it was horrible. It was uh, there was very little pageantry like you'd get said Gettysburg or other places where you have open fields and uh, uh, things like that. Here it was just like uh, you know fighting in the woods. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was just it was just, it was a horror show. I think it's yeah, you're right. The fighting there is almost indecipherable, and that yeah. certainly had scared many people away. Uh, because... Well, and and when you look at the again the letters from the soldiers and the accounts, uh, they started fighting there on well, the campaign began the night of May the third uh, with their march toward uh, uh, across the Rapidan River, uh, and it didn't stop as I said for more than forty days. Uh, they went for weeks, often without food. The supplies couldn't catch up with them. No, obviously, no changes of clothes or bathing. Uh, the regiments, of course, are born are drawn from uh, you know, individual locations, and so you knew the men you were fighting with. It was the grocery store owner's son, the kids you went to school with, and they're getting killed on both sides of you. I mean, the whole the, the I mean, it was it was horrendous, uh, and uh, uh, you can see that it's reflected strongly in the letters and diaries of those men that were there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah, most most of the previous battles, if you think about it, the armies would get together and fight for two or three or four days at Gettysburg or wherever, and then they'd pull apart and wouldn't fight for months. Mm -hmm. uh, this was like one battle after the next one, after the next one, after the next one, with no stop right. uh, and and uh, no break, no no quarter. Mm -hmm. Gordon, did the did the veterans of the the these battles when they don't put monuments up, they don't really talk about it in, in mass like they do, let's say a, a Sharpsburg or a, a Gettysburg or Chancellorsville, as you say, uh, is that because of that experience is totally different to them than what they were accustomed to? That combat is totally different to them. It's almost like a war of attrition in that yeah. regard. Is that why yeah. it's kind of like a nightmare scenario for all these men? Yeah, it was a very different style, and I think that you know reflected a lot about about Grant, who thought about fighting the war in a way it hadn't been fought up to that point. Up to that point, you would generally have a battle, uh, and then the armies would pull apart and refit and reform for God knows how long, often months. I actually, by the time the Wilderness Campaign began, the last major battle was Gettysburg, which was what ten months before. <laughs> there had been a few smaller battles in between, but not much. Um, and Grant's plan was basically to launch uh, a campaign that would move in all theaters, east and west, simultaneously against Confederate armies and fight them until they were destroyed. And that was a way to bring the rebellion to an end. And so he viewed battles as basically steps in a campaign rather than as an end in and of themselves. And you see that. He fights in the wilderness for two days. He gets stymied. And instead of, say, retreating like Hooker had done the year before, uh, the next day, he moves south and tries to get between Lee and Richmond, and they fight at Spotsylvania Courthouse for the next, uh, oh, week and a half. Uh, he can't win there. He doesn't quit, doesn't call it off. He moves again, maneuvers again. Uh, they, they, that, that's the way the campaign keeps, you know, keeps occurring. It's a thinking in terms of the big picture and reaching a goal rather than 
simply fighting battles. So, so Gordon, let's talk a little big picture. So I'm going to give a, a little pushback uh, to either to you and to more more of a question. I don't think it's certainly. I don't believe that's what Grant was actually fighting. Yeah, uh, I think when he takes the Overland campaign and extracts it from the grand strategy of '64, which, as mm-hmm. we know, that General Grant uh, was overseeing, uh, that the idea was to make absolutely certain that the Confederate forces uh, that they were not uh, allowed to uh, divert troops to other uh, threatened points in the Confederacy. Right. And of course, that campaign, or I should say, from a grand strategic uh, perspective, didn't get off to the best of starts. Butler gets bottled up. Franz Siegel in the Valley doesn't do so well uh, as well. And Hunter, they, they have their problems. Uh, Nathaniel Banks in Louisiana doesn't do so great. It's really just Sherman and, and, uh, and Grant. And so I agree. You're right. The warfare is absolutely unrelenting. But it, I'd say war of attrition would remind me more of what the Germans were trying to accomplish in Verdun. Mm-hmm. There, there was absolutely no regard for how many casualties that they were going to take, right? It was simply kill as many of the enemy as possible. Uh, it, it is a different type of warfare. And uh, and we've all, I think, had a, a, a challenging time in being able to explain that to our students uh, who see and and uh, and and recognize that this is not the war of 1862 or even in 1863, yeah. and they point to field fortifications. So now here's the question: It, um, it is it Gordon? Yeah. Is it misleading to attribute uh, this incessant fighting? To field fortifications, uh, the, the armies are locked together. That we never really had seen that, particularly in the right. Eastern Theater, prior to May of eighteen sixty-four. Is the field fortifications? They finally wise up and say, "Damn it, we are tired <laughs> of taking bullets here. Right, let's put some logs in front of us." Yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I, it's fascinating. There's several historians, of course, who've, who've worked quite a bit on those issues. Uh, there are really no general orders that came out and said, okay, we're gonna start doing field fortifications. It started pretty much at unit level. Um, and, uh, and well, as you know, up until the Battle of the Wilderness, um, basically most of the fighting in the East had been, uh, particularly had been done in open fields, uh, uh, soldiers marching against each other, standing up. Uh, there, sometimes they would get down into sunken roads or, uh, you know, into railway grades or, or behind stone walls, uh, but there wasn't what we would call field fortifications. Um, that really got going uh, in the wilderness. Uh, by the second day in the wilderness, um, both sides were starting to dig, uh, throwing up uh, works in front of themselves, you know, digging trenches, throwing the dirt in front of it. Earlier in the war, by the way, back in the Seven Days Campaign in 1862, there had been some digging. I think that's how Bobby Lee got to be called the king of spades or whatever. Um, but uh, actually they dig a dig a ditch and throw the dirt behind them. Well, they now figured out it works out better if you put it in front because then you got, you got more of a barrier. Uh, started to stack logs and that sort of thing. And it sort of just developed. Uh, by the time they got to Spotsylvania Courthouse, they were you know, realizing that it worked pretty well. I think it was a result of the actual conditions in the field, uh, the uh, 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 development of, of obviously of more powerful weapons, uh, increased firepower, longer ranges, all of those things coming together. Um, and uh, by the time they get you know down to the Cold Harbor area, uh, it's become an art form. You'd 
you you dig a trench, uh, you throw up the uh, the engineers will come out and try to site them on high ground. Uh, they'd clear the trees in front of themselves. There'd be a clear field of fire so that attacking troops would have to come across open ground and you could shoot them down. And after they'd been, say, at Coal Harbor for a few days, the Confederates even started sending out engineers into those cleared fields to drive stakes into the ground to mark out those yardage so that the artillery would know how to set the fuses as enemies were charging and would know exactly where they were going to be. Uh, and it turned into a total art form. Um, you can go to uh, a lot of battlefields and see how it, and see how each unit would do its earthworks. The ones at uh, North Anna, there's a great county park right there at the North Anna battlefield. And you can walk down the Confederate line uh, and see uh, the changes in the earthworks. Each unit or each regiment would do them slightly differently uh, because there was, again, no general uh, order that said, here's exactly how you're going to be doing it. Uh, so sort of the personality of the earthworks that would, would tie it to the individual regiments. You're right. The, the preservation of those field fortifications is, is truly remarkable. And, yeah. and our good friends in the National Park Service have certainly done their part in doing what they can to preserve them and to create trails that give us access uh, while still uh, protecting uh, that uh, historical resource. I, I think that Lee's last line at Spotsylvania, which is not on the main driving tour of spots. Right, right. Back by the Harrison House. Mm -hmm. By the Harrison House. It's worth going back there if we have anyone in our audience today that uh, loves trenches like I do. My first wife said to me once, hey, trench, Pete, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Right there, I should have realized this marriage probably is not going to work. Right? <laughs> they're not all the same. Uh, I I'll tell you, a lot, of, a lot of those earthworks are continue can you know continue to be discovered uh they're not a lot of them aren't that well known they're out in fields a lot of them got plowed up and that sort of thing but uh i'll never forget about eight or ten years ago i was over by standards mill uh, uh just south of spotsylvania courthouse and went out into the woods uh, behind a um some lodging that was there and there they were uh, there was a confederate earthworks uh, dug into the ground jubal early's boys had put those in uh and just like they'd been dug the day before what's preserved them back there often is the is the the forests by the way because the trees obviously the roots help hold them in the place and the trees keep some of the rain off and and they aren't then plowed under as in you know for farming uh, the most haunting place that i've been uh of all the battlefields in the overland campaign it's at the wilderness but, mm -hmm. It is, uh, I discovered, or I, I shouldn't say discovered, I, I saw it for the first time with Robert E. L. Crick, Robert K. Crick's son, who's the, Bobby is the chief historian at Richmond. Mm -hmm. He and I were walking Longstreet's flank attack. And as we neared the Orange Plank Road, I saw a little depression. And then I saw another little depression and then another little depression. And I just kind of took in, uh, you know, I can't tell you how, you know, probably not any more than 50 yards wide and long. Mm -hmm. But everywhere, there were all these little depressions. You know, at first I thought, what, God, this, this can't possibly be rifle pits, right, for a main line. That doesn't make any sense at all. Mm -hmm. uh, to discover, and as Gordon, you probably know, and you probably have been there. I've been back there. Oh, yeah. It's a burial ground for mm -hmm. all the federal soldiers whose bodies were disinterred and then reinterred into the National Cemetery. But it mm -hmm. was, uh, I'll never forget that moment. And and get the sense of of the killing that occurred there uh 
you could you could see those individual pits and reminder of that these were individual men who had lives and had families yeah. and I they think of the, lost right in those spots before they were before they were disinterred. And if you think of the casualty levels in that forty odd day campaign, you have about you know, the Union Army that started off uh, with about you know, 100, 110, 112 thousand soldiers, and it loses uh, about 55,000 men. Uh, and, and you have a Confederate army that starts off with around 65,000 and loses about 33,000. Now, this is killed, wounded, and captured, I mean, it's full casualties, but uh, I mean, they're both taking massive hits. And actually, the Grant's percents are slightly lower than Lee's on the casualty side. I mean, he's often laid out as a butcher, but he actually took a lower percentage loss if he measured against the number of men that started off than Lee did. But, and John, before we get to your question, I think it's important for people to recognize uh, the Northern people were better prepared for what the Army of the Potomac, Potomac suffered in terms of casualties. Imagine for a moment if George B. McClellan, and you really have to imagine, you <laughs> fantasize almost that uh, in 1862 that McClellan showed half of the aggression and and uh, that 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 uh, they granted. And if McClellan had done that outside of Richmond, which many of us expect expect that he should have done that, uh, and he had suffered horrific casualties, would the Northern people would they have tolerated it? It was that the kind of war at that particular moment that they were prepared for and that they had imagined. I mean, even Grant, I believe, wrote in his memoirs that he and others had the good fortune of cutting their teeth early in the war out west without mm -hmm. the, uh, the watching eyes of Washington. Whereas, of course, McClellan, on the other hand, of course, he had many other problems and it wasn't just because he was close to Washington. But it's a it's an important point to recognize is, you know, how even civilians in the North had to some degree become more hardened, right? Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and more willing to endure and to put up with uh, with what had happened in the Overland yeah. and, if, and if you look at the pace of the losses, by the way, you know, I mean, what Grant did was to fight basically four massive battles, one after the other, uh, with very little space in between them. Uh, before Grant came on, four major battles would take more than a year <laughs> to have taken place. So he's basically compressed into a very tight period of time, some major fighting. And unlike the generals before him, uh, who had obviously a lot more losses than he did, if you add them up, um, he had something to show for it. Uh, he's, Gordon, you've written these wonderful books on the campaign as, as a whole, and you've spoken to thousands and thousands of people up until the pandemic, obviously, in, in person at, at Civil War roundtables and other events and, and such. Uh, what is something that the general public is surprised about with the Overland campaign? Maybe, maybe something that we perceive from it and it's not true or or something that you you encounter when you go out and you speak to the public about the campaign that maybe they have heard, uh, you know, a, a big myth about it or something that it just draws them to it in a different way. I, I think the biggest myth that people have heard and the sort of uh, preconception that they come to that campaign with uh, is the nature of Grant and the nature of Lee uh, as far as generals. And it, this is a I had that same misconception because it's been floating throughout the uh, Civil War history. And the, the general misconception is, is that Lee was sort of prescient. Uh, I did actually an article for one of the books that Peter Carmichael put out a while back. Uh, 
the, the missions basically that Lee was able to um, uh, uh, fathom what Grant's next move would be uh, uh, almost supernaturally. And the other myth about Grant was was that Grant was uh, would would thoughtlessly shovel men to their death uh, and never maneuvered. He would just be like a bulldog, continually attacking, but never really uh, doing the more subtle things. And when you break the the well, the whole Oberlin campaign down, what you see is something that's very different. Um, Lee was puzzled on major occasions about what Grant was going to do at the end of the wilderness fighting, two days of fighting in the wilderness. Lee had no idea what Grant was going to do. Was he going to go back north above the, the river like uh, like Hooker had done? Was he going to shift over to uh, Fredericksburg and then go down the railways toward Richmond? What the hell was he going to do? And so Lee is sort of frozen again. Um, and that same uh, event shows Grant in a different light. He gets stymied in the wilderness after two days of horrible fighting, stops shoveling men into a hopeless situation, and instead comes up with a brilliant campaign and maneuver moves south, leaves the wilderness, gets between Lee and uh, Richmond. Uh, the plan being that Lee will then come out and fight him on open ground and he'll get the, the battle that he wants. And that's the way the campaign evolves with Grant doing a series of maneuvers, attacks, maneuvers and attacks, sort of a judicious uh, mix of the two. And with Lee often totally misapprehending what Grant was going to do uh, and being puzzled. And you can see it in his, in his, uh, you know, his letters to his his aides and, and of course the reminiscences after the war. Uh, there was a lot of confusion on Lee's part. Uh, the biggest one, of course, was the Spotsylvania Courthouse. When uh, on May on May 11th, as Grant's getting ready for his biggest attack uh, of the campaign against the Confederate mule shoe. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, Lee mistakes uh, what Grant's up to. Uh, his scouts bring in words that there's Confederates massing, I'm sorry, there's Union soldiers uh, moving through the rain, massing around the mule shoe, and Grant and Lee figures, ah, Grant's going to retreat. And so he pulls his artillery out of this mule shoe formation, weakening it even further, so that it'll be back on firm roads and be able to chase Grant in the morning. Well, Grant wasn't getting ready to retreat. He was pulling his army together to make the, one of the biggest assaults of the entire war against Lee's, Lee's line. And so we're sort of treated to the picture of Lee weakening the very place that Grant was planning to attack because he completely misread what Grant was doing. So that's that uh, that's one of the big takeaways I got from from studying these two men. Fantastic generals, but not the um, uh, not the kind of men that that uh, the myths have painted them to be. So, Gordon, can you talk about the flanking maneuver that Grant embarked upon at the end of the Cold Harbor? campaign, mm -hmm. uh, a flanking maneuver that the Confederate artillerist Edward Porter Alexander from Georgia, uh, he considered to be the greatest flanking maneuver of the entire war. I think mm -hmm. that is often not on the radar of most Civil War enthusiasts. Could you tell us a little bit about what Grant did after Cold Harbor? Okay, sure. I'd love to. My LSU Press that put out my book on On to Petersburg might get mad at me for telling you what the book's all about in two or three sentences because then he won't buy it. But <laughs> I, go into, I go into grisly detail there in a nutshell. Um, after Grant gets stymied at Cold Harbor, uh, he decides he's going to maneuver again uh, and decides to undertake a different kind of maneuver. This time he's going to basically cut Lee's supply lines, uh, some of them coming in from the south, from the town of from Petersburg. Uh, and others, of course, coming in from the Shenandoah Valley. And so he sends Sheridan's cavalry to cut the northern lines. Uh, and he uh, that doesn't work out too well. 
uh, Sheridan gets stopped there at the Battle of Trevelyan Station. But Lee decides to all his plan to cut the southern portion of the lines uh, is to pull the Army of the Potomac out of its earthworks uh, there at Cold Harbor, drop it south uh, along several roads. He's going to basically break the Army into different parts and then have them converge down on the James River. Uh, and uh, again, it's a, it's a, it's a a plan that keeps evolving, uh, but there are then to shift over toward Petersburg, cut the uh, Confederate lines down on that end, and then hopefully shoot back up and come into Lee's rear. Uh, and Lee, of course, will now be bereft of supplies and have to leave these Cold Harbor entrenchments, which are quite strong, and then Grant can have a big fight out on open ground. So it's a fantastic plan, and it gets actually executed uh, beautifully. Um, beautifully until the very end <laughs> and then there's a lot of miscommunications and failures to communicate and the different parts don't move the way they should but but uh, it's, a, it's a spectacular flanking movement and and uh, an ingenious idea well and i'll just say that you know for so long um the national park service really into the 1990s they played upon the lost cause themes i worked at the Cold Harbor Exhibit Shelter, when it was a shelter, now it's a small little visitor center. Right. And the, the words that the visitor sees when they step out of their car, uh, and it's a big wayside that's uh, hanging on the building. Uh, and it's the quote from Grant's memoirs in which he expresses his great regret and that there was not another attack that he had made more than the one that he made on, on June the 3rd. And it is all that, I think, Gordon, that you've said, uh, that has led up to this idea that Grant was incapable of thinking beyond just frontal attack, frontal attack, and frontal mm -hmm. attack. And it's really pretty remarkable to see that in the last 15 years, maybe a little bit more, how the historiographical waters have changed so much and that those interpretations, even at the National Park now, and not that they're following in the wake of academic historians, but it's certainly, it's much more balanced. When I first started in the Park Service in the 80s, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who would make a a defense even of Grant, let alone <laughs> seeing his praises. So it's pretty remarkable how, and I, I want to say that, you know, certainly your scholarship has gone a long way in reviving Grant's reputation in, in Central yeah. Virginia. There's just no doubt about that. Yeah, I, I tried to be fair about it. And when I started on this endeavor of writing about the Overland campaign, um, Obviously, I was born in Virginia and grew up in Tennessee, and Grant's not real popular in either one of those spots. <laughs> uh, and my, my dad was an old Reconstructed Confederate, so I grew up with that lore as well. But um, I, I said, well, look, what I'm going to do is set aside all these preconceptions about both generals and about what happened and uh, try to be a good lawyer on this thing. I gather all the facts, all the information, uh, and get it from... You know, not only the official reports and everything else, but find all the letters, newspaper accounts, try to sift through it all and just say, what is the, what, what do the facts show us? What's the evidence? And uh, that's what I tried to do. And, uh, and that changed my, you know, I, I saw that the stories about these men, the popular conceptions about these men often were just wrong. Uh, they were the result of post-war, uh, I won't call it propaganda, but uh, slanted memoirs, let's put it that way, uh, sure. that painted pictures that are not accurate when you go back and actually look at the data of what happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gordon, I'd like to ask another question about the wilderness because the wilderness always fascinated me. And uh, I was uh, 
you know, really interested in it when I was a kid because I'm I'm dating myself. Sorry, guys. But uh, when when uh, when different documentaries started coming out in the early '90s, and I was a young student of the war, and they started talking about the wilderness, it was just a fascinating thing to me that mm-hmm. they would even fight in this mess in the first place. But what really caught my attention were what happened right after the fighting had subsided in certain areas where supposedly you had these major conflagrations of fire going mm-hmm. on. How how big was that actually in real terms of uh, danger and, and breadth and such in the wilderness? Was it a massive uh, destructive force right after the firing had subsided? Or was this just something that was... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to use the word conflagrated, but you know where it was where it was uh, brought about to by the veterans, and almost a way to say how awful it was, and maybe that was just the way they had seen it. Yeah, um, my sense about it, and there have been some interesting articles written about that that very issue in the last few years. Um, but uh, my sense about it is the uh, the main accounts that you see from soldiers about the fires are up the area along Saunders Field, which is uh, the northern portion of the battlefield, uh, and then down along General Hancock's line, um, down on the Brock Road, uh, where his entrenchments were. There were fires along both those areas. They're pretty localized. It wasn't like the whole wilderness was in, in flames. It was really localized right where these some of the, the heaviest fighting took place. But there are accounts of the soldiers, you know, wounded soldiers lying there, of uh, them being burned to death of some men shooting themselves as the flames got to them so they wouldn't go through the agony of being burned to death. And, and uh, one of the, one of the uh, survivors wrote about uh, never forgetting the sound of the pop, pop, pop of cartridges as uh, the flames reached the men line in the field. How many were actually killed in the fire? I don't know. And, uh, but yeah, my sense is, is that I agree with you. A lot of those images and stories uh, they do have a basis in fact, but I think they're also used to um, express uh, the, the sense of horror of the mm. soldiers who fought there and, and what they went through. And you have to remember also there was men lying between the lines uh, from the will that we, we think of it at Cold Harbor because that, that incident has been highly publicized, but that was from the wilderness on down. Um, uh, men lying between the lines, uh, dying because nobody could really get out and pull them back in, and the opposing lines fairly close to each other, sort of a big no man's land there. Uh, there are stories of bravery of men uh, going out in darkness and trying to pull their friends back to safety you know, who were lying there. Uh, that was, uh, like I said earlier, it was a horror show from, from start to finish. And fires did play a part, but not, I don't think, anywhere near as, as much as has been. Well, I know that many of our listeners and, and all of us, we've read so many letters from soldiers and we all know that um, they always struggled, and they were quite open about this, that they always struggled to find the words to be able to convey the, the trauma that they had endured and what both of you are saying about the fires and that there might have been a tendency among some veterans to either exaggerate, if that's even possible, or to write about something that they did not see, which leads, of course, to this idea that the fires were more pervasive, that the entire wilderness yeah. was this burning inferno. Uh, that Those exaggerations, though, I think, speak to this challenge that these men face, that they continually to wrestle with. It was how to make people you know, feel 
the war the way that they were experiencing it. And so I thought, Gordon, that we could read to you, or I'll read to you, uh, the excerpt of a letter from Charles Brewster, who's in Massachusetts, and I think John right. has that to be able to share with us. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm just going to read from my, so the people at, uh, at home can read this. Uh, let me just say before I read this part of the letter that the Charles Brewster letters, edited by David Blight, the uh, historian mm-hmm. at Yale who just published a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Frederick Douglass, the Brewster letters entitled, When This Cruel War Is Over, are outstanding. It's I, an I, excellent I, book. I wish there was an index. There's no index. I have to whine about that. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a great book. This is yep. Brewster on the day after the attacks on May the 12th at the Bloody Angle. He is now crossing the trench line. The Confederates have vacated that position. And this is what he saw and he described. I'm going to read it right here. Mm-hmm. There we go. We'll read it right there, there. There goes another Reb. He looks about seven feet high. He's almost as tall as a cavalryman on horseback who's guarding them. They go to the guns to our front. Our time begins to look very short. I hope that we're spared, saying that many men had passed. Talks about the rebels throwing an occasional shell. And then there's another part, which I was, we continue to go down here just a little bit farther. And I'm going to paraphrase this. He also saw that the men, many of them were, he said, buried in the mud. He said that he saw one soldier who was clear that there was, he was still living. And even though he was encased in mud, he said he saw a number of other Confederate soldiers who after was certainly what Gordon, you know, 18 to 20 hours of constant fighting. These men were speaking, I think his word was gibberish, uh, that they had sort of lost touch uh, of reality. And so, Gordon, there's two things here. Could you for us give us your description of, of the bloody angle on May the 12th? You know what that looked like, and then the more and I think pressing and important question is this issue of PTSD and trauma. Uh, and so, your familiarity with these men who have fought here, could you sort of talk to us about your thoughts as to how we should understand their experience in coming to terms with the killing? Right? I'd, I'd love to know your opinion about that. But yeah. the first, could you just sort of describe that area? on May the 12th at the Bloody Angle. Sure, I'd be glad to. And I've thought a lot about the PTSD issue as well, which I would would very much like to address. Yeah, the the Bloody Angle was, uh, again, one of the horrendous confrontations during this Overland campaign on May the 12th. Grant launches this huge assault against the Confederate entrenchments at Spotsylvania Courthouse, the area that I've mentioned before called the Mule Shoe, because it's shaped like a Mule Shoe. and. breaks through the Confederate line, sends back about 3,000 Confederate prisoners right away. Uh, Lee rallies and uh, uh, throws in some of his best brigades to drive the Federals back. Uh, So to give him a chance to build a new line in the rear. Uh, And uh, this is all taking place early in the morning, starting around four o'clock in the morning till five in the morning on the 12th. Uh, The Confederates end up uh, after an hour or so uh, holding the inner uh, side of these earthworks. Uh, Union forces press against the outer side of those same earthworks. So what you have is is pretty much the Union Second Corps, a lot of elements from the Sixth Corps, some from the Ninth Corps, uh, piled in against the Confederate entrenchments and 
on the inside of those same entrenchments, basically separated only from them by a few yards of dirt, uh, is going to be uh, the various Confederate elements from all three of Lee's infantry corps that get poured in uh, to try to hold that line. Uh, they fight all day on the 12th, uh, end of the night, uh, past midnight on the 13th, and uh, don't really reach the end of their combat until probably around three in the morning on the on the uh, on the next the next day. Uh, so it's a massively long fight, and it is one of the bloodiest ones of the war. Um, Confederates holding their side of the earthworks. Uh, the men would jump up on top of the line, fire down at the Federals down below them. Um, uh, people would hand them up muskets so they could keep firing. When the man doing the shooting would get shot, somebody would jump up and take his place. Uh, the Federals rolled artillery down and started blasting huge holes through the earthworks. They used cohorn mortars to drop that fire mortar shells up and then drop them down behind the Confederate line. It's raining, it's thundering. It's the kind of scene that Hollywood would absolutely love. The entrenchments filled with water uh, and there are a lot of accounts, both Confederate and Union, of the uh, entrenchments uh, with bodies floating in them. Uh, I mean, it is a horror show that, uh, that Brewster uh, described. Uh, and uh, it is nonstop slaughter. Uh, there's uh, approximately 12,000 uh, Confederates and approximately 12,000 Union soldiers who were either killed, wounded, or captured during the course of that day. Uh, it, is, it is one of the most fearsome battles. In my book on Spotsylvania Courthouse, I devote a chapter to describe what happened there just in that day. And uh, the accounts are, are unbelievable. I mean, uh, they're, they're, they're the most, some of the most gruesome battle accounts I've ever seen. And the men were writing home about those things uh, right away. What makes it even tougher, something I mentioned earlier, and that is the units were drawn obviously from the hometowns. And so the men who are getting murdered on both sides of you uh, are your friends. <laughs> it's the kids you grew up with. You know them. Um, and, uh, and everybody has been marching and fighting uh, day after day after day with absolutely no break. Uh, and it's just like, how can things get worse? Well, here, try this one. I mean, that's what was going on. The impact was huge. Um, nobody, of course, at that time knew about post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, it's... And it's it's difficult to imagine what the psychic damage to both sides was from those those kinds of battles, where not only is your life completely in danger, not only are you watching some of the most horrible uh, uh, scenes imaginable, but the terrible things that are happening to people that you know from your hometown. Uh, and when it's over, you go back to those hometowns and they're gutted. Uh, and not only are those friends and people that you knew and grew up with dead or maimed, uh, horribly, uh, or walking around in a stupor uh, because they're suffering from the same thing you're suffering from. But uh, uh, obviously, the towns themselves, uh, even if they weren't occupied by armies, uh, are impoverished. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a very fertile field uh, for study uh, for, um, for historians. You see a little bit on it, uh, but not a whole lot. And I think that psychic damage, basically, to the to the American psyche, both North and South, was uh, unfathomable, so, huge. Important, before I let John jump in here, but just to say quickly for those who are watching, there is a fantastic uh, digital site entitled Private Voices. It is a mm -hmm. collection of letters, mostly Confederate, some Union, 
of semi-literate and illiterate soldiers. These are men who spoke the war. And for uh, our listeners, I would encourage them to go private voices. They have a wonderful search engine. All the letters are transcribed. You can't beat that. And the letters that are uh, describing Spotsylvania and the Bloody Angle, they're uh, a certain uh, brutality to those letters that you often don't find, not even in Brewster, because these men, they didn't write in formulaic terms. They described um, in a very, I would say, straightforward and, and uh, almost transparent way, almost a transparent way. And so uh, the sources that all three of us, and I suspect the folks at home that we are most used to, uh, to dealing with are those of the of the well-educated and the privileged, and those letters are of incredible value. But there's some other voices out there, and that site, Private Voices, and I'll do this as a little plug. John doesn't know this because I just got the email. Steve Barry at the University of Georgia, who is one of the architects of Private Voices and some other fantastic digital sites. I, uh, he is a, fan, a great historian. So he said, yes, John, I just got an email before the show. He'll be coming to the show in March. He'll be able to share his digital projects with us. And he uh, he does some really fantastic stuff with that. Private Voices is really, really John, go right ahead. Uh, Gordon, I have a, a lot of uh, students uh, who, who follow my, my pages. I also have a lot of educators. And one of the educators asked a great question, uh, which is uh, something I would like to point out. Uh, what should a high school student take away from the Overland campaign? A little bit of a different way of uh, asking about this. Hmm. I guess I guess what are they interested in and why are they studying it? <laughs> would be the, the question. Um, I, I view it in its big picture uh, as really a turning point in the war. Um, I know one question I'm always asked is, you know, who was who won it, Lee or Grant? And I think it's pretty clear. We we had said at the beginning of that Overland campaign when he was up on the Rapidan River that uh, if he had to abandon that line, uh, basically the jig would be up. Uh, he'd have to fall back to Richmond and end up stuck behind the earthworks in Richmond and perhaps Petersburg and and would lose his ability to maneuver and that would be the end of things. And uh, that's what happened. Uh, he ended up stuck in his entrenchments and the, basically the, he was on occasion able to send forces off to other areas, but pretty much the army of Northern Virginia was out of the war and uh, Sherman and uh, everyone else was able to mm -hmm. pretty much run free. I'm, I'm playing a little counterfactual with you here. Good. Uh, right, let's do it. I, if Lee had fought the Overland campaign as Johnston had fought the Atlanta campaign, right? He'd stymied Johnston, he'd stymied Sherman. And yeah. frustrated Sherman, and Sherman finally lost his patience at Kennesaw Mountain. We all know what the results of that were. We also know that the frustration that uh, Sherman felt, the Northern public was feeling. And we also know that the campaigns in Virginia also blow to, to Northern sentiment. Lee, again, and I've always wondered if he really did say this, that he thought the game would be up if he had to retreat back to Richmond and Petersburg. It strikes me that that's the very thing that he needed and should have desired because it is those earthworks that preserve the one commodity that he can't replace, and that's manpower. So, again, who knows? But it seems to me that, uh, you know, what turned the tide for the Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party were the victories of Atlanta and the Valley and also yeah. the fall 
Mobile. But uh, a more conservative course by R.E. Lee. And uh, he could have absorbed, right? I mean, I, I should say he could have inflicted, you know, more casualties, assuming a defensive posture. I mean, that's what's striking about the wilderness in Spotsylvania, North Anna, and, and even at Cold Harbor. His penchant for the offensive at the tactical level, it's bleeding his army and men that he doesn't really, he well knew that he couldn't afford. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting thought to think that maybe Johnson maybe had something. Uh, I, look, don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to elevate Johnson to these guys. <laughs> But I think that I'm not sure Lee said that. That's the one quote. I think he supposedly said it to our or to, to Jubal early, and I might be wrong about that. But it's a post-war quote. And, and why I don't believe that is because, well, one, that's not Lee's style. I mean, you think about when Lee took over the army outside of Richmond in 62, and he meets with some of his lieutenants, and they're trying to convince him how the game is up, that McClellan is going to be able to make this methodical advance, and there's not anything you can do about it. And he used, Lee did the word, stop your ciphering. Stop your ciphering. He said, because, of course, if you do that, then yes, we have resigned ourselves to defeat. And what Lee always did is he always looked for opportunity. And he continued to do that even down at Richmond and Petersburg. So... Uh, I made a good defense for Lee at the same time I've criticized him. As, uh, as okay. Well, well, Peter, you're you're generally right about everything, but you're wrong on this one occasion. And I'll tell you why. Okay. We know uh, that Lee said that if he had to to uh, fall back from the Rapidan line, uh, great injury will befall us, and that was what he did not want to do. Uh, because he wrote it down and sent a, a missive to uh, President Jefferson Davis and that says precisely that uh, just before the campaign's ready to go. And so he, those are his words in writing written by him to the president of the Confederacy to explain why it was so critical for him to hold that line. And the way he behaved pretty much uh, says that same thing. Uh, during the weeks before the Overland campaign begins, as the Union Army is massing there on the northern edge of the Rapidan River or side of the river and Lee is below the river, um, Lee didn't know what the hell was going to happen. Okay, here's this huge Union Army built up in front of him. There's another one, France Sickles Army, uh, is out in the Shenandoah Valley threatening his flank. And uh, General uh, Butler, uh, is down on the James River. Uh, looks like he may come up the river and hit Richmond. So as far as Lee knew, he may have to even detach part of his army uh, to fend off other attacks or support Richmond. Uh, and so he was pretty much stymied, had to wait and let Grant do the first move. So he lost the ability to seize the initiative right at the outset because he, he was the force that had to deal with all these other armies. As soon as Grant moves uh, and the Army of the Potomac comes a, flanks Lee basically by going down river about 15, 20 miles and crosses in Tremana and Ellie Fords uh, and into the wilderness and stops there, uh, Lee has been flanked. Um, what Lee decides to do since, and I think this proves that he uh, said what he meant when he said he had to hold that line, what he decides to do is to attack Grant in the wilderness. Uh, I often liken that to the terrier attacking the bulldog. Here's Lee, who's outnumbered two to one, who says, ah, I gotta go after him because I can probably fight him in the wilderness, but I got to hold this line. I can't retreat. I can't drop back. I got to go after him. And so he attacks Grant, takes a huge chance by dividing his army into three parts and sending each part down a different road, <laughs> and if, uh, which is a hell of a risk because if Grant had figured out what was going on, he could have wiped Lee's army out piecemeal, but it, it worked out well for Lee. 
but uh, I think his actions backed up his statement to uh, Davis uh, mm -hmm. as to what his intention was, and that was to hold that line no matter what. But he wasn't able to do it. And uh, I, I didn't dispute that that he thought that that was important. But what I do dispute is that he thought that once they fell back to Richmond and Petersburg, that he said that it's just a matter of time. That doesn't strike me as the REE that we know. And I'd say that the real problem, you know, we put so much on uh, the losses here at Gettysburg and the Adams County Chamber of Commerce isn't going to like what I'm about to say. Certainly the casualties of Gettysburg matter, but you really need to bring Chancellorsville and Gettysburg together. The offensive muscle of the Army of Northern Virginia is shredded after yeah. those two battles. And so Lee can't capitalize or doesn't have, I should say, the manpower to to capitalize upon any mistakes really that, that Grant makes. Yeah. Although he's got his army pretty much back to strength due to the failure of the Union forces to do much after get after Gettysburg. He's brought it back up to 65,000 soldiers, right. um, large portion of them veterans, several new outfits, uh, but also, you know, bringing in new soldiers, new recruits who are assigned to veteran regiments. So basically the experienced ones can teach the Greenhorns. Unlike the Federals, by the way, I always found that fascinating. The Federals generally would just bring in whole new regiments headed by people who didn't know how to fight in the first place. And uh, it's all politics. It's all politics. Yeah, it's exactly. all politics, right? It's just to be able to hand out new commissions. And, right. yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really good stuff that has come out. Zachary, Zach Fry, who's done a, a new, a relatively new book uh, about the politics in the Army of the Potomac. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Marvel just released a new book. I saw that. Order. Yeah. And I mean, as we all know, uh, Marvel is a contrarian about absolutely everything Definitely. with. And he writes beautifully as well. There are a lot of really good stuff that's now out now on the politics of the Army of the Potomac. Tim Orr, by the way, who's a professor at Old Dominion, a longtime seasonal historian here at Gettysburg. Tim Orr has done some fantastic work on that as well. Uh, on the politics and it's again it's a it's not a pretty picture and of course i think it refutes the silly notion today that as a people we're more divided than what we've ever been it's hard to even just even take that seriously when people say that it's just absurd mm -hmm. yeah all you have to do is you have to look at the northern war effort in the midst of the civil war and look at partisan politics it's as ugly if not uglier than what we have uh, mm -hmm. it's now mm -hmm. Tom, do we have any other questions from uh the folks out there Yes, I have uh, two questions I'd like to ask Gordon if I have the opportunity here, the time. Uh, Tim, do you still actively research the Overland campaign? And how would you describe your status as a student of the campaign since you're widely considered the Overland expert? I like that question. That's pretty good. Yeah, I still, I'm still fascinated with material. I'm always looking for it. And um, the world of Civil War historians is a very collegial world. We're a good bunch. Peter, Pete, and I even get along. Uh, and uh, uh, when when my you know when my friends who are also historians in the same area see some some material or sources that they think I'd be interested in because it touches on the Overland campaign, they usually let me know about it, and I I do the same for them. Um, and so yes, I still still consider myself very much a student of the Overland campaign. Um, and uh, I know Pete says I wrote the definitive study on the campaign, and I appreciate that compliment. And it is as definitive as there is now, uh, but I suspect probably in 30 years now, some somebody's going to come out with some new interpretations. And, you know, that's the way history is. It moves on. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I try to stay current and on top of it. I'm still writing a good bit. Um, 
I just finished a book, which will be coming out later this year, on a, a biography of a black soldier in the 54th Massachusetts, uh, who ended up being the first uh, African-American to be commissioned as an officer in the US military, uh, and who then was a major figure in reconstruction in South Carolina. He was actually elected uh, uh, as a senator in the South Carolina Senate uh, after the Civil War, obviously, and um, was uh, became speaker pro tem and was uh, responsible for a lot of the reconstruction reforms in South Carolina got run out of the state by um, the Ku Klux Klan and the Red Shirts and others uh, in, in, in 1877 after uh, the end of Reconstruction. But the fascinating story, and I was fortunate enough to come into some of the primary materials. So I'm still interested in a lot of different aspects of the war, but the Oberlin campaign obviously is, uh, has been a big part of my historical life and, and remains that way. I still, I'm doing probably six tours this year for different uh, Civil War interest groups, uh, Civil War Trust, whatever they call themselves these days, and uh, <laughs> right. several others. And, uh, no, I stay, I stay very much involved. Yeah. Uh, the other question I have is, is that since growing up around Gettysburg and such, I've often gotten into the discussions with people who say Vicksburg is the turning point of the war, Gettysburg is the turning point of mm -hmm. the war. And I've lately heard people say that when Grant makes that decision to turn south, that's the actual turning point. Mm -hmm. of the war. Uh, what are your thoughts on that idea that that's, uh, and it's a, obviously historians mm -hmm. will, will always have our opinions of what's the actual turning point of a conflict, but what's your thoughts on that, that that's now becoming more of a mainstream argument amongst historians and uh, people who, who read about the Overland campaign? Yeah, I, I've always considered it to be a major a major turning point. I don't think there's any one point where you can say, here's where the war turned. There, there were a lot of important pivot places, and that was one of them, because this was really the first time, uh, major first time in the East, when there had been a, uh, you know, a, a federal defeat where the Union general didn't retreat or, or bury into the dirt or something like that. Instead, he said, shoot, okay, I'm going to try something else. <laughs> and moved on. And this was really the beginning of Grant's importation of his concept as to how the war should be fought. Uh, and uh, I guess if there's any one turning point in the war, I would have to say it was probably back in March of 1864 when Grant was put in charge uh, mm -hmm. because he brought that sense of unity to the war. Uh, he brought what I think of as sort of a three-point program. That is, the armies will fight in tandem, east and west. They're not going to be like bulky mule teams fighting independently. And uh, their target will be not to capture territory, but to basically destroy Confederate armies. Mm -hmm. um, and there's not going to be these long intervals between battles. We're going to keep fighting. Uh, and I think he brought that to the war, and that's what ultimately brought it to an end. Mm -hmm. Gordon, um, Thank you so much for spending the evening with us. Gordon, is that the official records behind you or is that just a bunch of law books? No, those are the official records. I figured I'd sit in front of that part of my my uh, my book, my book lined uh, living room. Sometimes <laughs> my students get confused when they come into my office. They're like, were you a lawyer once? I'm like, no, that's the uh, the official records. <laughs> Actually, Eric Wittenberg probably set me up on this one, right? No. <laughs> It didn't. It didn't. We're, we're excited to see this new book that's coming out. Okay. The name of this soldier, his name is? Uh, Stephen Swales, S-W-A-I-L-S. And was he the color sergeant or did he have a commission rank? What was he? 
No, he was he was commissioned ultimately. Yeah, yeah. He volunteered for the 54th Massachusetts when it was first being raised back in April of 1863, uh, and was fairly quickly became a sergeant, um, and uh, got the first you know, black soldier's commission as a as a lieutenant, as a commission as a uh, commissioned officer in uh, 1865, early 65, January, February. Right. Well, we look forward to seeing that book because okay. you write beautifully, and but your prose it always has it has teeth to it. And what I mean by that is that it's analytical. It's got ideas. It proves again that you know you can tell stories, but stories you know they need to offer us an idea, something that we can hang our hats on. And uh, all your work uh, also demonstrates that what tactical history is capable of doing. So excited to see this biography when it comes out. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And you know, you need to do some more essay collections so you and I can corroborate. <laughs> can collaborate some more. How about that? Well, you know what, Gordon? I don't know if I ever told you this. A book that I edited was entitled Audacity Personified. I remember that. Really. Mm -hmm. Gordon has a piece in that. Robert Yale Crick has a piece. Bill Mill. Mm -hmm. Many, many do. Gordon, what I've not told you is it is an award winning book. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. It, the dust jacket cover got an award from some design firm. <laughs> and, oh, it's on the award, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to own it, even though, of course, I had nothing to do with the design at all. I thought I, I thought it was your picture on the back cover that has. Oh. Yeah, I, I've probably I figured into it. I'm sure. It <laughs> Gordon, it's wonderful to see you, and you know what, John? Good seeing you as well, buddy. We're going to be together here in just a few weeks. Absolutely, uh, Barry. Private Voices. Gordon, have you ever checked that out before? The site? No, I haven't. I'm going to take a look at it, though. Uh, it sounds fantastic. It's good right. stuff. And, and if good. you know of any other sites like that you think I should take a look at, uh, shoot me an email. Absolutely. Well, I'll do it. All right. Good. Thank you very much. It's been yeah, a pleasure. Good seeing you as well. Take good care of yourself. And John, okay. yes. when, do we, when do we rally together again, John? I don't remember the date. I, I don't remember the date either, but I'm sure I'll post it within the next 24 hours. Put an event page up for Steve Barry and, and all that. Yeah, I think it's March 6th or March 7th, but I'll get you the date and then we can advertise it. Yes, yes. And it's also been said in the comments tonight, and thank you everyone who's been here. We've had over 100 people the entire time we've been on uh, live today. Uh, that it's also been noted that Gordon has the ORs. Pete, you have a vast library, and I have Funko Pops. And it <laughs> shows the differences in historians and what you can do. So, uh, well, well, actually, how do you know that's not just a little picture I have behind me? You know, you that's true. You might have a green screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at least I don't look like a cat, right? Yes, yes. yes. We have to tell Gordon the last thing. We forgot to tell him that you know, one of the inducements to coming on the Tattooed Historian is that uh, you get, uh, Gordon, a 15 or 20% discount at the local tattoo parlor here in Gettysburg. So the next oh. time you come into town, man, we'll get a few beers, maybe over at Gary Owen, and then we'll go over and get yourself a tattoo. Okay, and I'll consult with John about what, what kind of tattoo I should get. There we go. Okay. I already have a hardtack and coffee tattoo, Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Gordon, you've been more amenable to that idea than any of our other guests. <laughs> true. That is true. Well, you, well, I've got to try everything once, right? There you go. One life to live. Uh, thank you, Gordon, again for, for spending time with us this evening. It means a lot to us and everyone uh, in the chat. Thank you, Pete. For another great evening. A lot of people are glad to see Pete and I back together again on a reunion tour. On a reunion tour. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be 
there'll be plenty more to come. And thank you everyone who's been in the chat and, and hanging out with us again. We've had over a hundred people uh, here live and uh, thank you for sharing everything out for liking and, and commenting and everything. Uh, it's been a great evening. Thank you again. We will speak to you very soon, everyone. Take care of yourself and be safe. Thank you.